I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And this morning we're going to wrap up our January series, Habits of Grace. This year we've been looking at corporate habits of grace. Imagine two neighbors who live next door to each other, nearly identical spec homes, both families of the same number of kids, basically the same ages. Their homes are mirror images, same square footage. Both husbands even work for the same company. Minor difference, the Joneses drive a Honda Odyssey, the Smiths drive a Toyota Sienna. But the major difference between the two homes, you would notice right away if you walked into either one, is that the Smiths' house is neat and tidy, while the Joneses' house is a disaster. The sink is overfilled with dishes stretching back weeks. You can't see the floor in any of the bedrooms because it's buried in clothes and toys and who knows what else. The, the surface of every table, every counter is piled high with junk mail and bills and last year's Christmas cards. So what's the difference between those two homes? Both of them, if you think about it, they track in the same amount of dirt in any given day. They use the same number of dishes at mealtime. They get the same amount of mail they wear the same amount of clothes and create the same amount of laundry in a given week. The difference is the Smiths clean up after the mess that they make, and the Joneses don't. This may come as a, a shock or a disappointment to some of you, but the difference between the church and the world is not that people out there in the world sin and people in the church don't. The difference is we know Christ Jesus, our Savior, who died for our sins, which means we should know what to do about sin when it makes a mess in our homes, in our church, in our hearts, in our relationships. Do you know what to do when sin makes a mess of your relationships? I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able out of our regard for God and his word as Jesus himself teaches us what to do in such cases. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. This is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Father, week after week after week, we have by your grace, grown accustomed to being amazed by you and your word and your wisdom. And it is a sheer joy for us to receive 
every word that comes from your mouth. We live by your words. Your words are life to us. I pray that the wisdom of your word here would dwell in our hearts richly, enriching this church family, homes and households here, that we would be marked by your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your reconciliation. So accomplish what you purpose in our hearts through this word. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Matthew 18, Jesus prescribes his redemptive process for handling sin in the church. Verse 15 makes that context clear. If your brother sins against you, Christians sin against each other. That is a sad reality, but one that you must be prepared for. One of the defining characteristics of any family is the way that family handles conflict and sin. Is sin ignored? Is it celebrated? Is it piled up in heaps so that bitterness and offense grows? Is it swept under the rug? Or is it dealt with God's way? Is it cleaned up by the blood of Jesus and by his grace and his Mercy. We've spent this January exploring corporate habits of grace in the life of the church. And make no mistake, the process in which any family, any church handles sin quickly becomes a deeply ingrained habit. It's the process. It's the way things are. You could probably write out a script for how conflict goes in your household. First, he says or does something or maybe forgets to say or do something. Then she reacts in a typical way, and next, he will say, thus and such. The issue is always changing because the issue is never the issue. Last week, it was the budget. This week, it's the paint color. Next week, it will be something else. The real issue is the process, and until the process changes, nothing will change. Church discipline, as we have referred to this throughout church history, is the redemptive process Jesus gave his church for handling sin. And as the biblical practice for dealing with sin as a church family, this is to be our habit. This is to be the characteristic way that we habitually deal with sin and offenses between one another. And it is a habit of grace because God himself graciously asserts himself through this process to restore wayward sheep and preserve our unity and glorify the name of Christ. So how does the Lord Jesus teach his church to handle sin and conflict? I want to paint with broad strokes. We don't have time to get into all of the nuts and bolts of this, but I want to show you the principles that inform what church discipline is, how it works, and by God's grace, why it works. Beginning with that definition, what is church discipline? The word discipline has all kinds of connotations. What comes into your mind when you hear the word discipline? Context matters, right? If you walk into a football locker room and you see the word discipline emblazoned on the wall along with other team values like teamwork and excellence and effort, you would take that to be a positive thing. But for many people, you put the words church and discipline next to each other, that just evokes all kinds of suspicion and fear and 
bad feelings. Doesn't that sound so legalistic and judgmental and authoritarian? Well, in Scripture, the words for discipline in both Greek and Hebrew, they mean instruction, training, education. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word musar means instruction, discipline. It it appears 30 times in the book of Proverbs alone, often showing up in parallel with the word for reproof or rebuke. So instruction and correction are closely related to each other. Jay Adams helpfully calls it education with teeth. It's education with teeth. We, We don't have time to read all those passages in Proverbs, but it is a profitable word study. And let me just sum it up for you. Discipline and reproof can be despised, resented, hated, rejected, and ignored, or heeded and loved and listened to. Two responses to discipline from two different hearts, and the results are dramatically different. The one who rejects discipline and reproof leads others astray, is stupid and foolish, reaps poverty and disgrace, despises himself and dies early. But the one who receives discipline and reproof walks the path to life and loves knowledge and is honored and is prudent and gains intelligence. In Greek, the word is paideia. That means to instruct, to educate, to enculturate, to discipline. Christian fathers are commanded in Ephesians 6.4 to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the Lord has a kind of discipline. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable. Notice for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. That's the word paideia. means discipline in righteousness. Righteousness is the kind of thing we all need to be disciplined in, trained in. And Titus 2, 11 through 12 tells us it's the very grace of God that does that disciplining for us. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us. It's the verb form of paideia, training us, disciplining us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The words discipline and discipleship, you notice in English, are closely related. Discipline is instruction. A disciple is a learner, one who is being instructed. And foundational to the entire concept of discipline in Scripture is this truth, found in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So discipline from the Lord is an expression of his love and his delight in his church. And the author of Hebrews cites that verse and then adds this incredible promise in Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's true if you're working out with the football team or in the gym. It's true if you are in the military. It's true if you're under the Lord's discipline. It's painful in the moment rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't you want that? The peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. In his address to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, Jesus himself says to that church as he calls them to repent, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's the language of Proverbs. So be zealous and repent. The church belongs to Jesus. He reproves and disciplines his church because he loves his church and he laid down his life for her. So be zealous and repent, he says. So church discipline is a family thing. As a father, I discipline my children and not my neighbor's children. I discipline my children because I love them and they belong to me. Church discipline is applied to the disciples of Jesus, those who have professed faith in Christ, who have been baptized in his name and joined to his church. The world outside of the church is full of sinners. We expect that. We, we know that. We've been given the gospel to bring that to the world outside the church, but the church itself is full of disciples who deal with remaining and indwelling sin, and church discipline deals with that. Discipline refers to a wide range of activities. Some of those within the church are informal, private, personal. Some of those are more formal and public and corporate. All of these are ways by which the church trains and instructs and corrects Christians dealing with remaining sin in our own hearts. Think of church discipline in two ways. There's proactive church discipline. It's like that routine preventative maintenance that you do on your car. You change the oil every 3,000 miles, whether you notice that there's a problem or not. You keep your tires properly inflated and change your windshield wipers, check your battery. That would be preventative stuff like you meet with the gospel community and talk about God's word and you gather in discipleship huddles and you confess your sin and you bring out attitudes of unbelief that you're dealing with and all of that is by God's grace preventative. That keeps us from falling into deeper and more serious sin and then there are occasions that require more reactive or corrective church discipline. Kind of like an emergency repair on your car. Your transmission goes out or your fuel injector needs to be replaced, or your flux capacitor breaks, and some major thing. This is necessary when sin has caused a break in fellowship between believers, like Jesus mentions here in Matthew 18, or when a believer is caught in some serious and unrepentant sin. So church discipline is the redemptive process Jesus gave to his church for correcting sin inside the church. And church discipline, we should note, has Several aims all at once. The most immediate and obvious aim here in Matthew 18, 15 is to rescue the wayward sinner. Matthew 18, 15, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Do you know the parable that immediately precedes this text in Matthew 18? It's the parable of the lost sheep. If a man has 99 sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 and go after that one? And when he finds it, won't he be full of more joy, restoring, rescuing the wayward sinner. That's the goal we see here. We see it everywhere in Scripture. James writes at the very end of James, which is the book we're going to next week. Excited for that sermon series. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, that happens. Christians who are baptized in the name of Jesus and profess faith in him sometimes wander from the truth. James says, if that happens and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the aim of church discipline. A second aim is to restore fellowship between 
believers. To gain your brother means not only that you brought him back from wandering, but that the broken relationship between the two of you has been repaired. Relational sin puts you out of fellowship with another person. Reconciliation restores that fellowship. In Matthew 5, 24, Jesus commands the one who's done the sinning to be the first to go and seek reconciliation. That word means a change of status from an enemy to a friend. Bitterness and hostility are replaced by friendship and fellowship. A third aim of church discipline is the health of the church. Proverbs 10, 17 says, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. So if a professing Christian is caught in some unrepentant sin, it's not just a danger to that person's soul, it's a danger to other people who will be encouraged and emboldened in their own sin and unbelief. The church in Corinth was sick and infected when it left scandalous sin unaddressed. And Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So church discipline is God's appointed way for the church to uphold God's word and his ways, and that serves as a gracious warning to the entire church to forsake sin and to cling to Christ. The ultimate goal of church discipline is the glory and the honor of Christ's name. We preached through the Ten Commandments last summer. If you remember from the Third Commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Taking God's name in vain means more than saying OMG or GD. Taking God's name in vain means bringing, bearing his name in a way that is false and deceptive and empty or meaningless. So as a baptized believer, you bear the name of Christ. And therefore, the sin of Christians in particular dishonors Christ to the world. And those who bear the name of Christ live in open and unrepentant sin. The name of Christ is defamed. Therefore, the aim of church discipline is to ultimately maintain the glory due to Jesus' name. That's an overview of what church discipline is. How does it work? What's the process? In Matthew 18, Jesus outlines four incremental steps for handling sin between Christians. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on step one because that's where everything starts, typically, and where by God's grace, most things should end. It's also the step that, as an everyday church member, you need to know how to initiate because this is, the ball's in your court here. I, I pray that this will be, as it has been, our corporate habit, our family process, the way we do things because it's Jesus' way. And the mechanics, the nuts and bolts of this really, really matter. We don't have time to get into all of those, but I do want you to know where to find those. The entire process of church discipline, it's so important. We have it written out, spelled out for us, because if you're in the middle of one of these instances, it's no time to just fly by the seat of your pants or go by your emotions. So it's outlined in our church bylaws. That's available on the members page of our website. If you're a member and you don't know where that is or how to get there, just ask. It's also in the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order, which you can search for and find online or order a hard copy off of Amazon. We often say we love our church polity, governance, these policies and procedures we have written out, the way we love a home security system. Not because we love policies and procedures, but because they serve to protect the people 
that we love. So step one, Jesus gives in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Step one is one-on-one. The first thing to note is this is a command from Jesus. This is not a suggestion like, hey, you might have your own way of dealing with things and Here's another option to consider. Jesus commands you to take the initiative whenever you think you have been wronged by somebody else. I could preach multiple sermons on this step alone, but here's the point. Deal with each other directly. Deal directly. Almost every conflict and division in any church would be extinguished if Christians trusted and obeyed Jesus and practiced this step. Proverbs 26, 20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. It's like magic. Fire can't burn without fuel. Quarrels and conflicts can't spread without gossip. What happens when You've been offended by Pete, and you take your grievance to Tom, Dick, and Harry. Well, now Tom, Dick, and Harry have a grievance against Pete, but Pete has no idea that he's offended them because he doesn't even know that they know. He might not even know that you're offended by him. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a whisperer separates close friends. That's a grievous thing. So here's a wise rule of thumb. Before you open your mouth to anyone else about someone else's sin, ask yourself this question. Have I said this exact thing directly to that person yet? If not, bite your tongue. Or hold your thumb back if you're texting. Of course, there's another side to the gossip equation. Proverbs 20, 19 says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. Gossip takes two. So imagine someone approaches you with, with some concerns. Like they're just concerned about somebody else's salvation and stuff. You want to be a good friend, so you want to listen and care for your friend who's obviously hurt or worried, bothered, discouraged, The loving thing to do is to gently, politely interrupt and ask, before you go on, can I ask, have you communicated these exact things directly to so-and-so yet? Because if not, I can't listen. Don't be surprised if that's hard to do. Proverbs 18, 8 and 26, 22, twice in Proverbs in the exact same words, says the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Isn't there something about gossip that just feels so satisfying? Like, you just, you know something. Somebody trusted you, came to you for counsel. We have all kinds of ways to dress it up Christianly, right? We, you can call it seeking counsel from somebody else first or processing or venting or maybe you're sharing a prayer request, with someone else. But it's gossip if you haven't yet obeyed step one from Jesus. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
Now, you might wonder, why should I be the one who's responsible to act first if I didn't do anything wrong? Somebody else sinned against me. I think one reason, Jay Adams points this out, is because only you know that you've been offended. Only you know that. The person who offended you may have no idea, in which case you will be waiting forever for that person to come to you and put things right, to confess their sin. When you obey Jesus' command to go to that person, you take responsibility first for your feelings, your reactions, and you graciously give the other person a chance to either confess their sin to you or to explain. And of course, it's totally possible you were not actually sinned against. This does happen. Having hurt feelings is not the same thing as being sinned against. That's important for any church to understand. Sin is that which violates God's law, not that which hurts somebody's feelings. But if you harbor offense without saying anything, you're the one who now has broken fellowship. I heard a story once. I was a kid, and it was so impactful to me. It stuck with me all these years of a church member who really wanted to talk to the pastor after the service about a serious personal concern, and as she tried to approach him and get his attention, he blew right by her, didn't even acknowledge her. And she was so offended. Thankfully, she did bring it up with him later, and as he recalled, he was sick that day and rushing to the bathroom. He didn't stop for anyone or anything. So it was a simple misunderstanding. Now, th this does not mean that every relational bump must result in confrontational conversations. It is often wise to overlook offenses. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love does that. Jay Adams offers this wise insight. Any offense that doesn't get between us and the one who committed it does not need to be raised. But anything that creates an unreconciled state between us and another, that's what we often call being out of fellowship. Anything that creates an unreconciled state between us and another must be brought up and dealt with. That is to say, any matter which is carried over to another day any matter which makes you feel different toward that person for more than a passing moment must be brought up. Now, be careful here because we all prefer to avoid awkward conversations. So you will want to tell yourself, I will overlook this offense. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter to me. But when you're honest, if that relationship is now cold, and if you feel awkward and uncomfortable around that person or you struggle to force a smile when they approach you or you can't keep up small talk with that person or you take the long way around on purpose just to avoid running into them after the service or whatever, then you're just lying to yourself and not overlooking the offense. So if you can't let it go and if it's affecting your ability to relate to that person, Jesus says, the ball's in your court. It's on you. Take the first step. Go. Deal directly and personally. And Trust Jesus. Lean into the awkwardness and tension in obedience to Jesus. Now, I have to note, there are times when overlooking sin is not an option. Sin that is, as Jonathan Lehman says, outward, serious, 
and unrepentant cannot be ignored. This would involve, 1 Corinthians 5.11 gives us a helpful list, not exhaustive, but helpful. What we see there is scandalous sins like sexual immorality and drunkenness in the life of a professing Christian. So say you become aware that another member in the church is having an affair, or you learn that that professing Christian was at Wiley's on Friday night and got wasted or blew through last month's paycheck at Grand Falls or is engaged in some shady business deal or routinely uses foul language and tells raunchy jokes at work and you know that person is a member of our church. That person professes faith in Christ. These are not overlookable offenses because they're public. They're not personal. They're public. Other sins that can't be overlooked include promoting false doctrine, 1 Timothy 1, stirring up division, Titus 3. If you care about your brother's soul and the health of the church and the glory of Jesus, you have to say something. Of course, we all have reasons that jump into our minds immediately why we should not do this. I really don't want to make things worse. Or I'm, I'm not really a confrontational person or... I'm pretty sure he wouldn't take it very well if I did say something. And Jesus takes away all these excuses in step two when he says in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Step two is take one or two others. The single factor that moves the process from one step to the next all the way through is whether or not the brother in sin listens, which implies repentance and forgiveness. Verse 16, if he does not listen. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them. Verse 17 again, if he refuses to listen even to the church. Refusal to listen is the thing that advances this along the way. And notice how the circle of people involved gradually gets larger as the process unfolds. From one to one in verse 15 to one or two others in verse 16 to the entire church in verse 17. Again, the principle is only those who need to know should know. So we're intentionally guarded in the process so that people's sin is not just waved around in public, causing all kinds of other people to be unnecessarily alarmed and concerned. However, this does mean, as Christians, we must never promise absolute confidentiality to anyone. Because Jesus tells us there are times when we may be required to involve others in this redemptive process. Now, Jesus' point here is not that ganging up on the brother is necessarily more effective. God may use that, the seriousness of multiple people coming in love and gentleness to confront someone in their sin, but really the core issue here is biblical justice, which is something our culture knows very little about. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of Two witnesses, or of three witnesses, shall a charge be established. So this is a serious situation. If one Christian charges another with sin, the truth of that charge has to be established. He said, she said, is not enough. Misunderstandings happen. False accusations are real. So involving others at this stage leaves open the possibility of innocence and the one who's been accused of sin, in other words, the one or two others who go are not to go into things with their minds made up. 
taking the side of the one who recruited them. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him, which is why in our justice system, rooted in biblical law, cross-examination is essential to the process. The, the witnesses are not on one side or the other. They are on the side of truth to get to the bottom of things, the side of reconciliation, making an appeal to both parties. And they are to mediate, to hear the facts, to determine if there's a legitimate charge, and if there is, then to appeal to the one in sin to repent and be reconciled. But what if he doesn't listen? Verse 17a, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And at this point, the process moves from informal to more formal as the church as an institution is involved. In our context, the first step would be probably to inform the elders who serve as representatives of the whole church. And the elders, it would be our job to determine when and how to appropriately communicate only the details that are needed to church members, either by written letter or in a private members-only meeting. At this stage in the process, the brother in sin is still regarded as a brother. And this is where the whole church participates in the process. Jay Adams, again, is helpful when he says, the reason why the congregation is told is so that, as a whole, they may have an opportunity to help the offending willful brother or sister come to repentance. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So There's a distancing, but it's a brotherly thing. The hope is that this person is awakened by that. You can't just go on carrying on like nothing's wrong. That brother would be warned and restricted from eating the Lord's Supper with the church. But these are not punitive, vindictive measures they are aimed at repentance and restoration. And finally, Jesus says in verse 17b, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience in Matthew 18. So when he speaks of a Gentile, he's talking about somebody who's a stranger to God's covenant people. A tax collector would be a Jew who has chosen to side with the enemies and oppressors of God's people. This is a heartbreaking step in the process as the unrepentant person is removed from the church. That doesn't mean that they're banned from attending the church. Our church worship gatherings are open to unbelievers. But it does mean that the church family formally communicates, we no longer believe that person's profession of faith. His stubborn, willful refusal to turn from sin gives us no reason to believe that he is actually a Christian. The example of the stage of church discipline in Paul's letter to Corinth, I think, is worth citing. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Paul writes to them, giving them instructions, applying these principles. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexually immoral sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? This is a grievous thing. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. To deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that's a hard word. It's an alarming way to describe removal from the church. Those who profess faith in Christ are united to Christ, 
belong to Christ and his church, but to be removed from the church and from Christ is to be handed over to Satan. But even here, there's hope of restoration so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. Finally, in conclusion, why does church discipline work? Jesus ends here with incredible promises that motivate us to trust God to work through this redemptive process as we lean into the mess of sin and conflict. Jesus promises that the decisions and actions of the church are backed by his own heavenly power and authority. In verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The the English translation doesn't quite catch the sense of the Greek. It, It more literally says, whatever you bind shall have been bound. It's already happened. Not that the church is leading the way for God. It's that God has already done this and we are acting out his decrees on earth. So this process is backed by Jesus' own power and authority. And Jesus promises that when we prayerfully pursue wayward brothers and sisters, God himself is going to be at work. This is a means of grace for the church. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That verse, often quoted in prayer meetings, comes in the context of church discipline. In our unbelief, we're tempted to view prayer as this passive, powerless thing, but notice, we agree together, we ask together, the Father acts from heaven. It's a means of grace. And Jesus promises in verse 20, his own personal presence in the midst of his church through all of this. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's a great comfort if you're gathered with a couple other believers and you remind each other, God's here with us. That, that's true. That's, that's a comfort. But the context, again, is redemptive church discipline. And the presence of Jesus in the midst of his church motivates us, motivates us to lovingly confront sin in the church and to pursue those who profess Christ but have wandered from the truth and to forgive those who sin against us the way that God has forgiven us in Christ because He is here in our midst. The presence of Jesus assures us when we trust him and obey him and follow his instructions here, we act with his blessing and his approval. My guess would be that over the course of this text and this sermon, specific people may have come to your mind whether it's a relationship, somebody you're out of fellowship with, or somebody you know who's caught in some sin, would you trust Jesus by going to that person quickly to put things right? Walk in this redemptive process that Jesus has given to us for our joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great Savior of our ruined lives, Savior of sinners. You shed your blood to atone for all of our sin. And though our sin is great, your mercy is more. Where our sins have abounded, your grace has superabounded. And so may it be true in your church and in this church where we belong, that we are people who trust you, who love the gospel and apply the gospel regularly. May this be true in our homes, that children brought up in the homes here of this congregation would 
learn to confess their sins to one another and forgive one another. May this be true in our marriages, that we would be quick to confess and forgive our sin. May this be true in our gospel communities and between church members here, that it would be a sweet thing for us as a habit and a regular routine practice to confess and forgive because Jesus, you died for us. You gave your life for us. You loved us. And now you live in us. May we be marked by your mercy and grace for your glory, we pray. Amen.